Have you ever visited the Dead Sea in southern Israel? Your tour guide may have pointed out this piece of rock as the wife of Lot. Is this really the wife of Lot? Today's lesson we'll talk about the reason for the Jewish tradition of washing hands before eating bread. What has this got to do with the wife of Lot? What has this got to do with the Bar Kokhva rebellion? And what does this got to do with the Black Plague? The plague where Jews were persecuted. Here we go. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. or just about. And we are ready to begin another lesson, a session of Torah study. Today's lesson is titled, Why Wash? And we'll touch upon some amazing ideas in uh, Jewish history, <clears throat> talking about, touching upon the, the Bar Kokhva rebellion. We'll talk about Loth and his wife. Good afternoon. And it's Rabbi Heshi here. Today is Lunch Learn number 163. Another interesting thing we'll talk about is how come after we wash our hands, we refrain from talking. We sit there quietly until we partake of the bread. These are some of the things that we'll be talking about today. A fascinating lesson showing how what happened so many years ago has got to do with how we behave today. Just making sure that this is working here. like it. There we go. Now I know that it's working. Good afternoon. Now we are just about ready to begin our weekly lesson. I'm going to begin with a blessing over a cup of water. Baruch Hello there. Jody and Roy, everybody watching currently live and tuning in later on. Here we go. Today we are <clears throat> talking about another Jewish tradition, like taking, taking traditional sources from the Torah, from the Talmud, from Halacha, from Hasidic philosophy, and applying it to our lives in 2022. So in the mid-1300s, about the year 1348, 49, 1350, there was the Black Death where many people contracted a disease and passed away. Now in the Jewish community, the death rate was much lower for a variety of reasons, uh, but the Jews were blamed by many as spreading this disease, poisoning the wells, because why would it be that the Jewish people did not suffer as much losses as the rest of the population? One reason may have been because they lived segregated in ghettos and were not as integrated with the rest of society for the disease to spread. Another reason has got to do with today's topic is that Jewish people were accustomed and are accustomed to wa washing hands um, more often, 
and hand washing was not very prevalent in those days amongst the population, the wider population, but Jewish people have been washing hands when they get up in the morning, before the meal, before eating bread, after returning from a funeral, and before Shabbos, bathing, and so on. It was much more common, and therefore perhaps the rate was lower. Either way, today we'll talk about one of those instances where Jewish people take care to wash their hands, and that is before eating bread, before having challah, we wash our hands. A couple of months ago, we had a lesson about hand washing in the morning, which is another topic. Today, we'll focus on the meal. Jewish people like to eat and celebrate, and we celebrate when we're eating bread with washing our hands before, and we'll talk about some of the the steps of the actual meal from a Jewish traditional way of doing things. So we'll jump right into our lesson on this post. There is a link to today's source sheet. And <clears throat> towards the end, we'll touch upon the Bar Kokhva rebellion and how that ties in to our meals. So here we go. Source number one. Anyone who eats bread. Good afternoon, Alex. Anyone who eats bread must wash, must first wash his hands. So we have a quote here from Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, which tells us that if one would likes wants to eat bread, it's not just challah on Shabbos, it's matzah, uh, bread, things like that. Maybe a, a certain kind of bagel, um... Anyone who eats bread must first wash his hands, even though they are not soiled, even though his hands are clean, they don't seem to be dirty, one must wash his hands. And we're not referring to washing hands to clean them, because maybe they're not soiled, but there's some bacteria or some other kind of dirt that's not visible to you. Rather, this is a ritual washing of the hands, and it's done in a specific way, as we will see a bit later on, but the general mitzvah is, it is one of the mitzvahs that before partaking of bread, we wash our hands in a specific manner. One must be very careful about the washing of hands. One should wash with an abundance of water. Whoever washes with full handfuls of water will be given full handfuls of blessing. The Talmud tells us to be careful about washing hands. It's not just something to do with hygiene and cleanliness, but one should be particular, one should be careful about the washing of hands before partaking of bread, and the water used to wash the hands. There should be an abundance of water, not to be... Um, not to be cheap on the water being used. Use an abundance of water, and as the Talmud says, you use an abundance of water using full handfuls of water, that will get you full handfuls of blessings. So this is a very special mitzvah. In Hebrew it's called netilat yadayim. In Yiddish it's called negelvaser, the, the, the waters that are used to wash our hands before eating bread. This is one of the mitzvahs that there are 613 biblical mitzvahs clear in the Torah. Then there are seven rabbinic mitzvahs. And these, this goes back to the beginning of the times of King Solomon. It sort of evolved, but definitely more than 2,000, just about 2,000 years old, this mitzvah 
of washing hands, not just on Shabbos. Anytime we eat bread, we're having bread for breakfast, we're having a sandwich, wash our hands in the prescribed manner before eating bread. And actually, after washing the hands, you make a special bracha. Baruch atah Hashem alokeinu malacholam asher kiddishadno b'mitzvotav. We are praising God who has sanctified us with His commandments and commanded us al netilas yadayim for the washing of hands. Now, this is not such an easy mitzvah because if you're on the plane and you want to have a sandwich, you got to get up, go to find a sink, and we don't just put your hands under the sink. It has to be done with a with a cup and done in a specific way. So whenever you're traveling on a trip to the park and you plan to wash, you have to make sure you have water and a cup to do this procedure before having bread. Number two, what is the reason for this mitzvah? Especially a rabbinic mitzvah. There must have been a reason why they came and instituted this this, uh, process of washing the hands before eating bread. What was their logic? As many rabbinic ordinances, it was in order to protect the law of the Torah, to place a fence, to put up a fence around the law of the Torah. And the Torah tells us that there was a concept of tithing. Tithing, which means back in the olden days, when Jewish people first entered the land of Israel, It was an agricultural society. Most Jewish people were busy working the land. They were farmers. They were cultivating, working the land, plowing and planting and sowing and doing all the steps to produce um, products, to produce, grow grains and fruits and vegetables, and they would work the land. The land of Israel is a very rich land, and this is what Jewish people were very busy with. And there's a mitzvah, a biblical mitzvah, to set aside a tithe. A tithe is a certain percent, a 10% of your produce. And that was given to the Levites, to the Kohanes. Well, different tithes from different products, different amounts. But one of them was the following. Source number two, and this has got to do with this week's parsha. This week we're studying the parsha of Emor in the book of Leviticus, which is dedicated to the laws of offering, sacrifices, and has a lot to do with the laws of the Kohanes, the Levites, from the descendants of the tribe of Levi, one of the twelve original tribes, and the Kohanes, which are the Kohanim, which are the, the male descent, the, ma- uh, the masculine uh, sort of line, dating back tracing back to the first Kohen, the brother of Moses, Aaron. So source number two, the first of your grain, your wine, and your oil shall you give him. This is in the book of Deuteronomy, that there are certain gifts that the Kohens received. You see, the Kohens did not work the land. They did not have a territory. They did not have a portion in the land. They were the spiritual guides of the Jewish people, their mentors. They were doing the service in the temple on behalf of all of the Jewish people. And as payment, the Torah instituted, the Torah set up certain mitzvahs for the Jewish people to support the Kohens and the Levites with many things. A total of 24 gifts. One of the gifts is called Teruma. Teruma means separation. It was the first of your grain, your wine and your oil. Those are the examples the Torah gives. 
grain. So you have wheat growing and you harvest the wheat. Part of that grain should be given to the Kohen, specifically the Kohen, not the Levite. You can choose which Kohen you want to give it to. Now, actually, this was not a tenth. That was a separate tithing that was given to the Levite. This is to the Kohen. It wasn't a tenth percent, ten percent. It was usually about two percent, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less. Something about that. So from your grain, your wine, and your oil. So before partaking of this grain or wine and oil, you need to first set aside a bit to the Kohen, make a delivery, bring it to the Kohen, so continuing its source too, it is a positive commandment to separate the first portion of such crops for a priest. This is Teruma. Now, here in the diaspora here, out of Israel, this is not really practiced today. But in times that all Jewish people were living in the Holy Land of Israel with the Temple, this was a mitzvah. And today in Israel, it is also practiced. And therefore, one must be more careful in buying produce from Israel, even here, if it came from Israel. That is the mitzvah. So the Kohen is sitting in his home in, let's say, the city of Jerusalem, and he gets the delivery of grain. And what does he make from the grain? He makes bread. And he gets the delivery of a bottle of wine, a bottle of oil, and that's how he supported himself and his family. Now this teruma, this gift from the Israelites that was given to the Kohen, is considered holy. It is consecrated. And it needs to be eaten in purity, in ritual purity. Again, in biblical days, and uh, let me just give a uh, disclaimer here. Well, the first section here is dealing with the technical halachic reason why we wash our hands before we eat. It's just fascinating to understand where it all began. And in the second section, we'll delve into the deeper message of the washing of the hands, which perhaps is more applicable today. But it is Torah, and let's study Torah together. Let's wrap our brains around God's wisdom. And here is how it works. So the Kohen gets this teruma. This teruma is considered consecrated. It's not just ordinary food. It is considered holy. Because the Kohen is the representative of God. And by the Israelite, the random Jew, uh, separating part of his crop and giving it to the Kohen. It wasn't just to support the Kohen, but the Kohen is someone who sort of represents God by doing the service in the temple for God. And therefore, this is like a gift to God eaten by the Kohen. The Kohen had to eat this in purity, as we see in Source 3. It is forbidden to partake of teruma that is ritually impure. Now, ritually impure does not mean that it's dirty. It is a impurity which can be created by an impure person, an impure animal, a dead animal, or an insect. There can be impurity from certain bodily emissions. There are various ways. Uh, dead body is a simple, most famous, I guess, um, example, a way of impurity. And if this food, this holy teruma, that was separated and given to the Kohen, comes in contact or is contacted by an impure person, touched by impure person, it contracts the impurity and this food becomes impure. And if the food becomes impure, then the Kohen cannot eat this teruma while this food is impure. It needs to be discarded.
And that is the halacha. So, continuing in source number three, since people tend to touch all kinds of things unknowingly, by default, hands have a minor degree of impurity. The Kohen must therefore wash his hands before eating any truma. Came along King Solomon Shlomo Amelech just under 3,000 years ago, and he instituted him and his court, the Jewish judicial court, they instituted that one, a Kohen, a Kohen must wash his hands. A Kohen, this was originally started by King Shlomo, and I believe it was Hillel and Shammai, which uh, added on to it, but this mitzvah is that because this teruma, this piece of grain, this percentage, this gift that was given to the Kohen is holy and needs to be eaten in purity. Even if the Kohen is unaware that he is impure, but hands, our hands are very touchy. They are very busy. They go places and they touch things without us even realizing. So the hands are rendered to be impure, at least a certain level of impurity, because perhaps, even without our knowledge, we have touched something with our hands. So there's a certain, a minor level, there are very various levels in impurity. So therefore, the Kohen, before partaking of this holy teruma, which this grain he made into bread, let's say, before eating this bread, he would, wa- he would have to wash his hands to remove this impurity. Because the Torah says that if the Kohen is impure and the food is impure, they are not, he is not allowed to eat it. So came the rabbis and said, one second, because the hands are possibly impure, because the hands are very crawly and move around and touch all kinds of places and things. So the rabbis came and said that in order to remove this level of impurity, which was placed on the hands because probably the hands became somewhat impure. So... You remove that impurity by washing your hands. Before you touch the bread, before you touch this holy teruma, the Kohen must wash his hands. That's step number one. The Kohen should wash his hands specifically before eating the holy teruma to make sure that his hands are pure. Source number four. How does this get to us? I'm not a Kohen. And I'm not eating teruma. So why do we have to wash our hands? Source number four, our sages ordained such a washing even for ordinary produce. Even if it's not teruma, the sages extended this mitzvah of hand washing even if the Kohen is eating ordinary food which is not holy. So that people would accustom themselves to washing their hands whenever they eat. And thus would not forget to wash for teruma, And they did not wish to differentiate between Kohanim and Israelites. So the rabbis extended in order that the Kohen should always remember to wash his hands before partaking of the holy teruma to remove any chance of impurity. So to make it simpler, and that the Kohen should not forget to ever wash his hands, they said whatever the Kohen's eating, even if he's not eating teruma, he's eating plain bread that was not holy. He should also wash his hands to just get in the habit, in the custom, in the, in the routine of always washing before eating bread. That way, for sure, he'll never forget to wash his hands before eating truma. 
And in order not to differentiate between the Kohen and all of Israel, the rabbis extended it that all of Israel, even those not eating teruma, should always wash their hands before eating bread. Why only bread? You might ask, why only bread? There are other crops. There's wine, there's oil. Well, wine and oil, even if the Kohen's hands were impure, you don't touch the wine when you drink it. You pour the wine into a cup and you pour the oil into a cup or into a bowl or mixed into a food. We don't actually touch it with your hands. So there was no concern that the hands will make the teruma impure. It's only the grain. And plain grain was not very common during that time. People took the grain and they produced it into bread. But eating plain grain was not very common, was not very found in the houses. So when the rabbis made the institution, they made the institution in the most common scenario. And the most common scenario was that this grain was produced and made into bread, and therefore it is only bread upon which we need to wash. Source number five, the Code of Jewish Law tells us the manner in which they are eaten is by making bread up from them. Washing one's hands was required only for bread that is commonly used as a mainstay of a meal. Washing is not required when one partakes of grain, that is not free, as it is not frequently found in people's homes, something which is frequent. So then, there is room for concern, so the rabbis instituted the washing of the hands, but something which is not routine, something which is infrequent, especially in those days, eating plain grain was not common, and therefore there was no institution for the washing of hands. So it remained that only bread we wash our hands for, and even other delicacies like cookies and cakes and pretzels which are made from grain, we do not have to wash, being that it is the not the mainstay of a meal. It is not the main food, and that is where the institution was made. That explains why some have a custom, some are of the opinion, that let's say a bagel, which was made not with water but with juice, um, one does not need to wash their hands for and make the blessing of hamotzi because it is more like a snack. Well, there are various opinions about that, but at least some are of, of the opinion that it can be viewed if the juice is sort of is tasted and it's not, you're not sitting down for a whole meal, it's more of a snack, then this institution, this mitzvah of hand washing would not apply. Now, that might seem, this might seem a bit far-fetched, but let's just wrap up this idea. Source number six. Now today, at present, source six, Kohanim may not eat truma because of ritual impurity. So any Teruma is never consumed by Kohens, even in Israel today, because Kohens are all the time impure. There is no pro proper process of purifying. We need the temple, we need the ashes of the red heifer, and that is only during temple times. So all Kohens do not partake of this holy Teruma because anyways they are impure. Nonetheless, nevertheless, this ordinance was not nullified so that we will be habituated to eat impurity in the era of Mashiach, soon Mashiach will be here, the third temple will come down and be built, and once again these laws will resume, and we want to be in the habit of washing before bread, so when Mashiach comes, 
the Kohens will be able to eat their truma impurity by being in the habit of washing hands. So this law remains. So this is the explanation brought in the Code of Jewish Law from the Talmud why we must wash our hands. The real, the real answer is we must wash our hands because that's what the Torah says. That's what Code of Jewish Law says. This is the will of God. So we wash our hands. But to understand the background, how this all evolved, there are quite some steps and it is a bit far-fetched. But nonetheless, once this ordinance was brought into Jewish law, it becomes Jewish law with the full force of the law. And there are many laws, sections in Talmud and Jewish law dedicated to the laws of hand-washing, what kind of water, how it's done, the process, the procedure. But just to sum it up once more, in the Torah there is a mitzvah of teruma that one sets aside a certain amount of his crop for the Kohen as a gift. This is holy. This needs to be eaten only by the Kohen, the priests, descendants of Aaron, in holiness. It needs to be eaten in purity. And because hands are always busy and tend to fidget and touch all kinds of things, so the hands of the Kohen have, are considered impure always. And therefore, before eating this turuma, he needs to wash his hands to remove this impurity. By extension, it's not just the Kohen when he's eating turuma, it is all Jewish people whenever they're eating anything to get into the habit of always eat, uh, washing hands before eating so the Kohen will not come to transgress the biblical commandment of eating turuma while he, the food is impure. Today, when we wash our hands, this reminds us that soon... Mashiach will be here and these laws will come back into mode, back into action, into law, into practice. And it reminds us that although life is good, there is a big section of the Torah that cannot be fulfilled nowadays. We are lacking our temple and many of the laws which come along with it are not fully practiced. Now this mitzvah of washing hands was very carefully observed by many Jewish people over the past thousands of years. One example I remember reading about is from a diary of the Rebbe's mother, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson. Our Rebbe, his mother was Rebetzin Chana. And her husband, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, was exiled by the Soviets in 1939 and sentenced to a five-year exile in the remote city of Chile in Kazakhstan where he lived under in uh, terrible conditions and she wrote a diary his wife the Rebbe's mother accompanied her husband tending to him um, trying to ease his plight and one of the things she describes was the lack of water there was very little water available and the little water that she did get him he split half for washing of his hands and half for drinking even though it was such a dire situation he was dedicated and devoted to this mitzvah of hand washing not eating bread before washing hands thank god we have a sink in our homes we have plenty of water and doesn't cost much to let the sink run a bit, have an abundance of water, fill up that washing cup, and wash our hands before eating bread. Three times on the right hand, then three times on the left hand, all the way up to the wrist. We say the bracha, and then 
We'll see soon. Eventually, we could eat the bread. But let's take a step back or a step in and dig a little deeper. Is it just that, you know, thousands of years ago, there was this Teruma business and the Kohen and the Israelite, and that is why we're washing hands? There must be something deeper. There must be a message to us in 2022 in Brooklyn, New York. Source number seven. Source number seven. What does this all represent? Think about it. We have bread on the table. We're about to eat it. We go wash our hands. What is its message? Think about the myriad steps that it takes to get bread on the table. It doesn't just appear on the table. How is the bread produced? We work and toil, whether it's us ourselves or we work hard for the money to be able to afford the bread. But there's a lot of work that goes into making the bread. There's work, there's toil. Yes, now we have tractors and all kinds of machines, but it takes a lot of work create and invent, cook and bake, and finally we eat, till we get to eat something. And the bread can represent all the toil, whether it's actually the creation of bread, the development of bread, or anything that we are working to make money in order to afford the bread, and whatever it is we have to sustain us, the bread comes about through our hard work. So our hands represent human ingenuity, the work we do, the hands, our hands are what we work, hands are um, what we work with, whether it's actually plowing the field or putting the seed in the ground with our hands or turning the machines on, whatever it is, the hands, even if we're using our brains to work, but the hands represent work, the work that we invest into developing things. And bread represents human achievement, the food we eat. The bread is, okay, we worked hard, now we got the bread. We plowed, we pl- planted, we sowed, we, we harvested, we did all of the process of kneading and mixing and shaping and baking, and now we have the bread. So the bread is what you achieved. The hands represents the work that you invested into this achievement, into creating, into developing, into producing this bread. Or more abstract, the hands represent our work in the office and the bread is our paycheck, the money that we have to go on vacations and have a good time. Source number eight. What has this got to do? Why do we wash our hands? Because the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the words of Moses through God telling him to tell the Jewish people, Moses is getting older, the Jewish people are preparing for their entry into the land of Israel after 40 years of wandering in the desert. They're going to work the land, no more manna. They're going to be involved in material and physical things. In the desert, they were in a spiritual haven. They were in paradise. They were enveloped by the clouds of glory. They had just witnessed the revelation at Mount Sinai and constant miracles. And now they're leaving that behind and they're going in to settle the land and work the land. Tells Moses to the Jewish people, source number eight, when you have built fine houses to live in. And your flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold have increased, and everything you own has prospered. Beware, 
lest your heart grow haughty and you forget your God. You might say, my own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me. Remember that it is your God who gives you the power to get wealth. It all comes from God. Yes, you worked hard. You strategized. But ultimately, it is God who grants success to the actions and your plans. Source number 9, King Solomon says in the book of Koheles, Neither do the wise have bread. It is not the wise, your wisdom that got you your bread. Your success is not due merely to your wisdom, to your great ideas, to your brilliant plans. Continuing in Source 9, Our success is not dependent on our own talents but on God's blessing. The work of our hands alone does not give us bread. It is God's blessing that feeds us. Our work is a container, but an empty container until God fills it with His blessing. Yes, we have hands and we got to work. We're not supposed to just rely on others and sit back. We need to work, we need to come up with ideas using the brain God gave us and the hands and feet God gave us to do something, to make money, to have an income, to support ourselves and our families. But it is not only our hands that grant us, that give us that bread. We make a container, we make a channel for God's blessing to th flow through to grant success, that when I put that seed in the ground, God is going to send rain and make it grow. And grow good. And grow well. When I come up with this plan, this business plan, to invest in this and invest in that, and meet this person and meet that person, it should go well. It should be successful. So 10, source 10, by washing our hands before eating bread, we are cleansing ourselves of any sense of entitlement, arrogance, or complacency. We have bread on the table, but it is God's blessing that brought it to us. The bread is the achievement. We have the bread on the table. Before we indulge, before we eat that bread, we take our hands, which represent our ingenuity, our work, our toil, that perhaps brought this bread to the table. And we wash those hands. We wash it of any impurity, of any arrogance, of entitlement. Hey, I look how I worked so hard. What did the verse say? The verse said that it is God who gives you the power and grants success to the hands, to the to the work of your hands. We wash our hands, and only then can our hands eat the bread. Touch the bread and we eat the bread. Because the bread, yes, it is a result of our handiwork but it is God who granted success for the work of our hands to be successful. So the washing of the hands is the message that we recognize that yes we worked hard but we are in recognition and acknowledgement that it is God's blessing that brought success to the work of our hands. Source number 11. 
The Lord said to Aaron, You shall not inherit in their land, and you shall have no portion among them. I am your inheritance and portion. God tells Aaron that they did not work the land, the Kohens. The Kohens were people that were dedicated to Torah study and raising the spiritual awareness of the Jewish people. The Kohanim did not work in the field. They worked in the temple and relied on the tithes donated for their upkeep. A Kohen couldn't fool himself and think that he had worked for his bread. Because he didn't work for his bread. It was given to him as a gift. It was clear that he was being fed by the kindness of others. We should all feel that way. It is not our own work and effort. It is all a gift from God. So the idea of washing of the hands comes from the halakha that the Kohens needed to wash their hands. But the Israelites, the rabbis extended and say that every Jew, even if you're not a Kohen, you wash your hands. Because just as the Kohen clearly acknowledges that the bread is not the result of his hard work. It is a gift from somebody else. It is a gift from God that the, there is a mitzvah that the Israelites should gift the Kohen a percentage of their crops. So he for sure does not feel a sense of entitlement to the bread because the bread clearly was not a result of his direct work. So to all of us should be like the Kohen. And this is why the Israelites are similar to the Kohen. We all wash our hands. Because the Israelites should also have that feeling like, like the Kohen that even though we did work in the field and we did toil to make that money and went to training and went to study and got tested and so on and so forth, yet, ultimately, it is God who orchestrated all of this for us. So we wash our hands to remove any sense of entitlement, any sense of arrogance, feeling that it's all about us. Yes, we should use the talents and the gifts, the brains that God gave us. And some people out there are quite talented. But it's a gift from God. The talent is a gift. The means to be able to develop the talent and the success that is granted is God's flowing blessing. So that is uh, the message of the washing of the hands before partaking of bread. There's a story of the Kaliver Rebetzin. So in Jerusalem, I studied there about 12 years ago, right across the street there was a shul of the Kaliver Rebbe. Him and his wife were Holocaust survivors. They were actually, I believe, engaged uh, or maybe even married before the war. She passed away about, she passed away about, um, about 10 years ago or so. And he passed away just recently, a couple of years ago. His name was Menachem Mendel Taub. And his wife was, uh, I think maybe Shifra, Chana Shifra, something like that. And they were separated during the war years. And miraculously, they were reunited. They both survived. And very unique couple. And she shared a story that she was in the concentration camps and on the famous death march for six weeks, marching from one camp to, to Bergen-Belsen. She was there with two of her older nieces. And she described how how uh, she basically gave up. But she 
was encouraged by her nieces who were a bit stronger than her. And they finally made it through the death march alive, barely alive. And there they were given some coffee. And whatever it was called coffee there. And she literally felt like her minutes were numbered. And she had an infection. Uh, without getting into all of the graphic details, she filled up, she got her cup filled up. And she says that suddenly her clouded mind, the clouds just like parted in her head. And she said to herself, she said, God Almighty, I don't know how many more minutes I have left to live. Why would I drink this? Let me do one mitzvah. How long has it been? How many months did I not have the opportunity to wash my hands? In the ritual washing of Neglovas, or the mitzvah of washing hands. And she just this just came to her. And she went over to the window of the barrack. And instead of drinking this most sought after coffee after weeks of starvation, she did Neglovas. She washed her hands three times on the right, three times on the left. And she said suddenly she had this surge of energy. Her infection started to heal and she started to, you know, get this burst of energy, start to feel much better. And miraculously, she survived, was reunited with her husband. She said that mitzvah that she did, that was the turning point in her, uh, in her survival. So that's just one, another example. There are many such examples of Jewish people we're very meticulous about this mitzvah. Thank God it's much easier today to get in the habit of washing our hands three times on the right. So how do we exactly is this done? Let's turn the page to our third section. And we're getting, we're getting to the story of Lot's wife and the pillar of salt. But first, how exactly is this done? Source number 12. One who washes his hands must show concern. For number one, the water should not be unacceptable for washing hands. It cannot be dirty water. It cannot be water that was used to bathe in, to wash dishes in. It should be, you know, pure water. And without getting into all the details, but generally, you know, nice pure water from the sink. Number two, there is a revius. Revius is a, a measurement. It's about uh, a little more than a cup of water. A half a cup of water, it's about uh, eight fluid ounces for each pair of hands. So if you're washing your hands, you should have at least that amount of water. But as we said in Source 1, it's better to have an abundance of water. Fill up a nice amount. Number three, one wash from a container. We don't just turn on the sink and as we're washing our hands with soap. Rather, we fill up a container, we fill up a washing cup, and we use this cup. Number four, the water come from the power of a person who pours it. You don't just dip your hands into the cup. The cup should be poured over your hands, one hand at a time best. First over the right hand three times, and then over the left hand three times. The water should go over the entire hand up until the wrist. And each time the water, each pouring, should cover without stopping once and try to cover the whole hand till the wrist and then a second time the whole hand till the wrist and a third time and then turn to the left hand the whole hand once the whole hand the second time and the whole hand the third time and then we rub the hands together and that is when the blessing is said for the washing of for bread
source number 13. After the first hand is washed, it is clean and pure. Okay, so this is addressing why is it that here is a hand washing cup. This is a, you'll see this is a hand washing cup. Many Judaic stores will sell such a cup. This is not the most beautiful one, but uh, now they make them in silver and beautiful ones. And it's a nice Judaica item for a Jewish home. And usually in the kitchen sink, they'll have such a cup to wash your hands before eating bread. Some homes will actually make a special washing station, a wash basin in the dining room so that they can wash hands right away right near the table. So why does the cup have two handles? So first of all, it's, uh, you know, the handle is to hold the cup while you're washing on the right hand and then washing the left hand. But why two handles? So here is the reason in source number 13. After the first hand is washed, it is clean and pure. The unwashed hand, however, is not. So now you did, you washed your first hand, you washed your right hand, so now that hand is pure. But if the two, by the other hand, your left hand is not yet pure. So if the two hands touch after the first hand was washed, it is necessary to rewash the first hand. Because if your right hand was washed already, so this is pure, and this hand is still impure. So if I'm going to go and touch this before I dry this hand, and before this hand is washed, then this hand is going to be, is still impure, and it's going to bring that impurity onto the already washed hand. So we're careful that after the hand is washed, we don't touch anything, and for sure not touch the impure hand before you wash the second hand. We use a two-handled cup to make the process simpler, making it easier to avoid the hands touching each other. So if I have, getting back to our cup here, if this is just one handle, on my right, on my left hand, I washed my right hand, I've got to get the handle to wash the left hand. So I'm going to have to go like that and not touch the unwashed hand because this hand is still impure. I don't want it to bring that impurity onto the already purified hand. So if there's two handles, it's just much simpler. You wash this hand, then you wash that hand. So hopefully that is clear why we have two handles on the traditional hand washing cup. Source number 14. One should pour second waters, even though technically uh, one washing per hand would suffice, but it is customary and accepted to wash at least a second time, and we do even a third time, over each hand to remove the first waters which became impure by coming in contact with the unwashed hands. One who eats without drying his hands is considered as if he ate impure bread. The impurity is the repugnancy of wet bread. One should not dry his hands on his garment because this leads to forgetfulness. Okay, Jewish uh, custom and life is very colorful. <laughs> so all kinds of interesting things. Uh, not always so logical, but he says here a couple of things. So first of all, he says that we wash at least a second time. So the right hand once. But what happens is that this hand, before you washed it, was impure. Now that you washed it, so the water makes the hand pure. But those waters are a bit impure because they touched the impure hand. So the first waters are somewhat impure. Even though they purified the hand, the waters themselves are somewhat impure. So you wash a second time in order to remove those impure waters and remain only with pure waters. 
and we wash even a third time just to make sure all bases were covered. And then we repeat that with the left hand. So that's the first point. That's why we wash three, hand, three times on each hand. After we wash our hands, we dry them. After you dry them is when you make the bracha, you make the blessing. The drying is part of the process. It's part of removing the entire impurity by drying the hands. Uh, and then it says that what you should, when you're drying your hands, you should dry them on a towel or on a paper towel, but not on your clothing. Because this can lead to forgetfulness. This is brought down hundreds and hundreds of years ago. One of the great uh, rabbis, I think it was the Tashbat, he's known as. And he writes that you have wet hands, you don't rub it on your clothes. Um, just not so clear. I, I believe that our custom is that we make the blessing while we're um, washing our hands, while we're rubbing our hands together while they're still wet before we dry them. So just uh, to clarify that. The blessing is said while our hands are still wet and we're rubbing them together and then we dry our hands. Okay, moving on to source number 15. So, we washed our hands three times each. We rubbed them together. We said the blessing. We dried them. We made sure not to dry them because somehow this is something uh, mystical that drying your hands on your actual clothes can somehow lead to forgetfulness. We have some of these ideas. We don't put on two uh, clothing, articles of clothing together. It can lead to forgetfulness. We don't wear clothing inside out with the stitches out, uh, facing outward, and some other things that we are afraid will lead to forgetfulness. So if you have anything you want to remember, especially Torah study, uh, we refrain from wiping, drying our hands, from hand washing on our clothes. After we washed our hands, we said the blessing, we do not tuck. And in a uh, home where you have a couple of family members and you're waiting for everyone to wash their hands so we can break bread together, you can be sitting around the table and saying, no, 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 ah, 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 but not saying anything. And whether here in shul, after, we, we, after Kiddush, we wait for everyone to wash their hands on Friday night. And it can be a couple of minutes until everyone has a chance to wash their hands, but we do not talk. We refrain from talking and getting distracted until we actually make the blessing of Amotzi and eat bread. Why do not we not talk? Source 15, whoever recites the blessing of Amotzi directly after washing his hands will not suffer harm during that entire meal. So the Jerusalem Talmud has quite a uh, reward trying to entice people or just to uh, strengthen and show us how important it is that there should be a small break. There shouldn't be much of a break. As soon as you wash your hands, you should make the blessing. And that is the reason why we don't talk. Because since the purpose of washing our hands is to purify them before eating bread, we must be careful not to get involved in any distracting activity or discussion in between washing and the meal. Lest we inadvertently touch something impure. The whole reason why we wash our hands is because our hands are very busy. And even when we don't realize we're talking, we're, there, well, we're drinking, we're touching, the hands can go in all kinds of places and bring on an impurity. That's why we're washing our hands, right? It all started from the Kohen and the Truma. 
because the hand, we don't know that it's impure, but because we see that hands are very touchy and very fidgety, so we say, oh, hands are always impure. So you got to wash your hands before you eat bread. It started with the Kohen, it was extended to all of the people of Israel and to all kinds of food, as long as it's bread. So if we go and wash our hands, and then we, for, we sit and we start talking until it's time to eat bread, then the, the whole point is missed. Because while you're talking, again, the hands will get, in, will get impure. So as soon as you wash your hands, we sort of guard our hands. You don't have to actually wash your hands, but we shouldn't get into a discussion. Once you get into a discussion, you can forget about your hands. And again, you'll have to wash again. So technically, if you wash your hands, and then you start talking and having a whole discussion, you've got to wash again. So we don't talk. We just sit there quietly and not get distracted until it's time to make the bracha of hamotzi and eat bread. Once we ate the bread then um, it's okay. Although, if in the middle of the meal one had to go to the bathroom or something like that, then one should wash again in the same ritual fashion without a blessing at least. Source number 16. We move on to our final section for today. And we'll talk about the actual meal. So we bake bread, break, broke bread, <laughs> and we begin the meal. Source number 16. Another item in the Judaica stores, they come up with all kinds of Judaica items besides the mezuzah case and tefillin and a talis, Shabbos candlesticks, a shofar, uh, esrog box, and uh, all kinds of interesting things that can be used for different rituals, different mitzvahs. Besides the hand washing cup, we have a salt shaker, a nice, beautiful silver salt shaker or salt holder that will go on the table, especially on Shabbos and holidays, to adorn the table with something beautiful. The salt is part of the ritual. It's not just, you know, to add some spice to our food. It is part of the process of beginning a meal. Source number 16. The sages were wont to follow many customs at meals. Maimonides tells us that the sages, they had a habit of many customs. We're not going to go through all of them. They're very interesting. Where we eat, where you should look. You know, for example, don't stare at somebody's plate during the meal. It's not nice. Those are things that are brought in Midrash, in Jewish law. These are included in the realm of mannered behavior. Mannered behavior, it's an element of Torah law teaching us how to be a upright human being. One example is that the person who breaks bread should not place the bread in the hand of a person who is eating unless the matter, the latter is a mourner. Let me know if you ever heard of this. Oh, hello Mark and Amy and Bob and Alex. Nice to see everybody. Uh, and Emil, if you have ever uh, heard of this, that when you, so you have the big challah, you washed your hands, you didn't speak, you made the blessing for washing hands, you made the blessing for amotzi, and you take a piece of that challah, and the one who's baking, breaking bread is distributing a piece of challah to all of the assembled. But when it comes to the challah, he should not place the bread in the hand of a person who was eating. You shouldn't put it in their hand. Rather, you should place the piece before them, on their plate or in front of them, but not in their actual hand. Unless the latter is a mourner. If the man is a mourner or the woman is a mourner, then you can place the piece of bread in your actual hand. Apparently, there are various um, reasons that the commentaries give, but apparently this was a custom for a mourner. A mourner is someone who does not eat their own food, who is given food as a sign of mourning. 
we learned this from the story of Ezekiel that a mourner out of mourning instead of make, getting busy making their own food they are given food they are served food and it's sort of put into their hands so by putting bread in somebody's hand it is uh, it is associated with mourning and therefore it is not to be done um, but if the person is a mourner then the bread should be placed in their hand there are various other reasons but that is something that we're careful with that when distributing the challah it should be placed in front of the person not directly into their hand that's just an example and there are many such um, customs that sages had a habit of doing while they were in the middle of a meal but let's focus on one which is the dipping of the bread the challah, the matzah in salt, in the beautiful salt shaker uh, that you have on your table, you sprinkle some out or dip it in what's the idea behind this? source number 18 sorry, source number 17 a person should not begin reciting the blessing of a mozi over the bread until salt is brought to him so that the bread will be eaten with flavor this is an expression of respect for the blessing you're making the blessing of amotzi lechem in our praising the almighty god for giving us bread the blessing at least the first piece should be the most delicious and tasteful and flavorable piece and in those days especially the bread did not really have all the ingredients that it has today it was uh, more bland and plain so in order that this piece of bread that you just made the blessing on should be tasty so you have salt and you dip it into salt so it has a, a little bit of taste nowadays that our bread has salt usually so technically it would not be needed but nonetheless there are other reasons as we'll see some of them soon why we continue to dip all kinds of bread into salt and one of them is the following idea now whenever we make a blessing we want that it should be the most delicious the, the best piece should be the one that we made the blessing on. So the first piece you dip into the, uh, into the salt. We dip it customarily three times. But what does this have to do with the... Sorry. With this um, kind of stone. Now if you visit Israel and you go to the southeast of Israel you will see this this is along the Dead Sea it's kind of mountain and it's called Mount Sodom why is this Sodom this is the area of the biblical story of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah the people there were very evil they were very selfish and inhospitable and very opposed to hospitality and in this city and the neighboring cities there lived a man named Lot Lot was a nephew of Avraham it was the, the son of Avraham's brother Haran. Haran and Lot lived amongst these people and when the time for their destruction came the angels, two angels were dispatched to extricate Lot, his wife, and, her, and their daughters from the city to be saved in the merit of their great uncle, Uncle Abraham, Uncle Avraham. But his wife, Lot's wife, was a Sodomite. 
And she was not like her husband. Her husband had learned from his uncle Avraham to be kind, to be gracious, to be hospitable. So when the angels arrived, Lot hosted them against the law of the land, against the law of the cities and of the inhabitants of the city that you were not allowed to host any guest. Lot's wife was very mad. Well, eventually, when they were on the way out, the angels had notified them that the city was going to soon be overturned and they should flee. And the angels had warned him and his wife not to turn back and look at the flames and the destruction of the cities. They did not deserve to see their, the destruction of their uh, neighbors. They were only being saved, not on their own merit, just on the merit of their great uncle, like Uncle Abraham, Abraham. But Lot's wife did turn around, and the Torah tells us in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, source 18, Lot's wife looked, from behind him and she became a pillar of salt and this is possibly the that is this is the area where these cities were once because it says there was near the dead sea it says in the torah yam hamelach the sea of salt and some will say that this figure is actually that pillar of salt that lot's wife turned into. Well, on the other side of the Dead Sea, I think in Jordan today, they have another kind of uh, similar kind of statue, I guess. If that is the actual pillar, I do not know. But it does say in Mishnah, I did not have a chance to actually look this up, but it does say that if one sees the pillar of salt of Lot's, of Lot's wife, she'll say a special blessing. Well, apparently it was at one point in history known where exactly this pillar was and I guess it was passed down from generation to generation. I mean, the Torah says it and the Torah doesn't speak in... The Torah means what it says and the Torah says the story actually turns into a pillar of salt. Not, not like the story of um, this boy that was in Hebrew school and he hears this teacher saying that Lot's wife turned into a... Uh, pillar of salt while they were fleeing the city and the boy says well my grandmother was driving and she turned into a telephone pole so that's not what I mean not she turned into a pillar of salt but she became Vatahi the Torah said and she became not just she turned into Vatahi she was transformed into a pillar of salt I believe Josephus Josephus Flavius in his book says that he saw the pillar of salt so going back thousands of years this was a tradition that hundreds of years before during the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah being overturned and destroyed Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt but the question is why whether this is the actual pillar or not the question is why a pillar of salt is quite a strange punishment for a woman <laughs> to be turned into a pillar of salt so we take a look and continuing in source 18 it says Rashi from the Midrash for she sinned with salt she was repaid sort of measure for measure she sinned with salt so she turned into a pillar of salt Lot said to her when the guests the angels arrived well they were all unaware originally initially that they are angels give a little salt to these guests the bread was bland they were, they were having some matzah actually it was the night of Passover and give a little salt to these guests 
And she replied to her husband, also this evil custom you wish to introduce into this place, not just you're hosting guests against the law of the land, you shouldn't be hosting them, why are you being so kind? This is against the law. People were not allowed to be hospitable, go figure. And you even want me to go get some salt for them that should have good, delicious, tasty food. Then she went to all her neighbors saying, give me salt because we have guests. And she had her, her attention was that the men of the city would come to know of them and come to punish her husband for hosting these guests. So it all started with salt. Lot's wife sinned with salt, so she turned into salt. And by us having salt on the table, this demonstrates the opposite of Lot's wife's customs. We do have salt, whether we have guests, some have a custom that the women specifically should bring the salt. But either way, the idea of the salt reminds us of the story uh, not to be like Lot's wife, but rather to be gracious, to be hospitable. We should always have guests over at our meal. And that is one idea of the dipping, of having salt on the table, ensuring that the bread is tasty and flavorable. As we said, today our bread is usually anyway salted. But nonetheless, there is more of a spiritual and a mystical idea behind having the salt. Source number 19, first of all, the salt is very bitter. Don't just eat plain salt. It's good as a spice. But you put too much salt, you mess it up. It's too salty. Salt, source 19, this is from the teachings of the Arizal Rabbi Isaac, Lord of the Kabbalah. Salt, which is bitter, represents divine severity. And bread, the staff of life, represents divine kindness. It is what gives us life. It is what sustains us. The salt represents the discipline that sometimes can be bitter. However, we wish to overpower this severity. It's necessary. You can't always have kindness. You can't let a child play with a knife. You've got to discipline and take away that knife. So in life, there's got to be discipline. There's got to be judgment and severity. However, we wish to overpower the severity of the salt with the kindness of the bread. Therefore, the common custom is to dip the bread into the salt, kindness atop severity. We don't take the salt and sprinkle it over the bread. Take your challah and take your salt and sprinkle it on top like you might do with your uh, salad. But with the bread, we take the challah or the bread and we dip it into the salt. The challah is above and you know our actions are so impactful that just the way we do things can have a great impact. So we're careful, especially according to the mystics, the teachings of Kabbalah, which teach us that the bread should be dipped into the challah. Sorry, the challah and bread should be dipped into the salt and not vice versa. Source 20 says the Midrash, while we are waiting silently, right? We washed our hands for bread. We're waiting for everyone to finish washing their hands and for the leader to bake bread, to break bread. So there's that time that we just sit there without talking, without communicating. We just sit there making sure our hands don't get impure and waiting to have to partake of the bread. So we are bereft of mitzvah. Says source number 19, the Midrash says, we're bereft. We washed our hands. We did the mitzvah of washing our hands. We didn't make the blessing of eating the bread and making more blessing. We're just like sitting there. We can't study Torah because we can't talk. So we're a little bit bereft of mitzvah. At that point, the prosecuting angel tries to draw attention to this shortcoming. Hey, we're just sitting there doing nothing. However, the covenant of salt protects us. Having the salt on the table or the dipping of the... Even just having the salt on the table, that protects us against the Satan, against the prosecuting angel saying, Hey, look at these Jews. They're just sitting and doing nothing. What's special about them? What mitzvot are they doing? Oh, the salt is right there to say, One second. 
What's salt? Salt protects us. What's the covenant of salt? Source, uh, continuing at source 20, why is it a covenant of salt? The Torah describes the relationship of God and the Jewish people as a covenant of salt. Bris oilam melach. Or bris melach oilam. Salt is a preservative that neither spoils nor decays. Salt can last and makes other things last. These unique properties make salt the perfect metaphor for God's eternal covenant with the Jewish people. The covenant of God and the Jewish people is not dependent on our behavior. That is an additional layer to the relationship. But the core bond that Hashem has with His children is like parents and children. Parents and children now have a bond that is independent of any behavior or achievements on behalf of the children. So if, even if the child is not doing very well in school, they should be a source of pride to the parents. You are my child. No matter what, how you behave, there is a bond, there is a love, there is a connection and a pride in the child just being who he is. Yes, in addition, if they make the parent happy, then their achievements will bring additional nachas and pride. But there is something there that is beyond any behavior, beyond any achievements. It's just a deep love. And the, similarly is the bond. It's like salt. Salt doesn't decay, doesn't spoil. It's just there. It's eternal. Not depending on the performance of mitzvahs. God doesn't just love the Jews that do mitzvahs. God loves the Jewish people. That's what the Torah says. Matem, you are God's children. And that is really how we should treat all, each other. So the salt reminds us how we should treat each other. And the salt... Um, stops and knows any kind of decree that the Jews are bereft from mitzvah. So what? Even if we are, God has a covenant with us like salt. It's everlasting, independent of our behavior. There was this father that came into a yechidus, came into a um, private audience with the Rebbe and he complained that he gets angry at his children and sometimes he actually gives them some patch, uh, he uses his hands, and he was very sad about that. And the Rebbe, instead of uh, giving him all kinds of tips, the Rebbe told him to contemplate, to meditate, every time that happens, or always, that these children are God's children. They're not just yours. They're God's children. Children, no matter how they behave, and they're making you upset, they're still your children. They're God's children. And if they're God's children, would you mess with God's children? You would treat them with respect and not out of anger. Yes, they got to be disciplined, but with respect and compassion, out of love. Because no matter how they behave, they are your child, they're God's children. And that's what the salt reminds us. The salt reminds us, reminds the heavenly angels up there, that no matter what, even if they're sitting, waiting, doing nothing, they are God's children. There is a salt, which is something which is a preservative. This relationship, this covenant is preserved through all situations. Source number 21, after we finished eating bread, it is time to bench. Bench is grace after meals. It is time to thank God 
for the food, after everything we eat, we thank God. But the main grace after meals, the long versions of the blessings, and bibl- the biblical mitzvah is when we have bread, we have a meal that satiated us, and we have the five grains, which is made into bread, or challah, or matzah, then we bench, we bless God. Source 21, you will eat and be sated, and you shall bless the Lord. So specifically when, there's, when you're sated, and when that is specifically by bread, a nice amount of bread. At least about, uh, I would say, a slice. It is a positive mitzvah to bless God after eating satisfying food. It's one of the 630 commandments. You had satisfying food in the form of bread. You got a bench. You got to bless God. You thank God, the creator of the world, who sustains us and all of the world. And actually, there are four blessings in the grace after meals. The first blessing was instituted by Moshe. That's usually the one we sing. With his graciousness, with his goodness, he sustains all of us. That was instituted by Moshe when the Jewish people were given the manna. The second blessing by Yehoshua. We studied a couple weeks ago about Joshua when he led the Jewish people into the land of Israel. When they ate, they thanked God for giving them the land of Israel. The second blessing talks about that. The third, by King David. And Shlomo, which we thank God in that, that blessing for Jerusalem and the temple. And ask God to restore us with the third temple. And the fourth blessing, by the sages of the Mishnah, and the fourth blessing, we bless uh, our parents and other beautiful things. That was instituted by the sages of the Mishnah about 1900 years ago. This bl- blessing, what's the sages of the Mishnah? What is it? When, when was it instituted? This brings us, as we conclude here, to the story of Bar Kokhba. Here are some coins that were recently unearthed. And if you can make out, I'm no scholar uh, in figuring out how to read these things, but these are the coins. I think that's a palm tree there, which was a Jewish symbol of the land of Israel. And... There are some other um, Jewish symbols and words on these coins. Many such coins were found. So the history is that the second temple was destroyed by the Romans about the year 60 or 70 of the Common Era. And we have today the Western Wall, which is a remnant of the surrounding wall of the Temple Mounts. After it was destroyed, about uh, some years later, about the year 135 of the Common Era or so, the Jewish people led a rebellion uh, to take back their land, take back Jerusalem from the Romans. This rebellion was led by a man named Shimon, and he was referred to as Bar Kochva, which means a star, thinking that he was the Mashiach that's going to rebuild the temple and... They were successful for a couple of years to drive the Romans out and recapture Jerusalem and start plans for building the third temple. But after two or three years, the Romans began to crush the rebellion and uh, the Jewish people at the time, millions of Jewish people living in Israel then, were eventually cornered in their capital in a city called Beitar, not far from Jerusalem. And eventually, after a very uh, bloody, fierce battle and uh, siege, 
I believe, the Romans stormed the city and killed men, women, and children. A very terrible story. And that's actually one of the things that we mourn on the day of Tisha B'Av. That was the same day, the 9th of Av, when we mourn the destruction of the temple. We also mourn this destruction of the city of Beitar during the Bar Kokhba rebellion. But the, the Romans, led by Hadrian, the emperor, was extremely agitated and worked up by this rebellion. And the blood flowed. The Talmud describes how the horses were swimming in the blood of the Jewish people and how the vineyards were um, filled with uh, blood. And the scribes that Hadrian, I believe he had a field or a vineyard that was like, over a hundred miles by a hundred miles. I'm not sure if that even makes sense, but yeah, possibly. Yeah, it makes sense. A very wide, wide um, vineyard. And he, sorry, not a hundred. I believe it was 11 miles. Sorry, 11 miles by 11 miles. Got to check that up exactly. hundred miles sounds a too much. And he surrounded his vineyard or his field with the bodies of the slain Jews, piled them up, using them as a gate, like a like a fence all around. That's that's how many people were killed. Very very um, graphic description of the Talmud with some other details. And the sages and the Jewish people wanted to bury their loved ones, you know, to bring closure and bring respect uh, to them. But the Romans refused, and for many for a long time, for I think a few years even, or a very long time. The bodies just lay there. But finally, when they were given permission to take the bodies and bury them, um, the sages of the time proclaimed, uh, instituted this fourth blessing. Source number 22. On the same day that the slain of Betar were brought to burial, they instituted the blessing, the fourth blessing, which begins with the words, Who is good and does good. Praising God for who is good, who is good and does good. Who is good, thanking God, for that the corpses did not decompose while awaiting burial. It was a very special thing that the body stayed, stayed intact, sort of, for the honor of the bodies. And does good, and does good, thanking God that they were ultimately brought to burial, thanking God for this opportunity. And uh, I guess it, it, uh, it's to remember the brave warrior, warriors, the soldiers that were fighting for not just... Um, to have their own land, but for religious freedom. It was a very difficult time to be able to rebuild the temple. And when we eat, we remember that we're, the, the energy that we get from food, we want to remember those people that use their energy uh, for good things to fight and put up a very brave and heroic struggle to try to preserve Jewish life in Israel as much as they can. That is the final blessing of the benching. And that wraps up today's lesson. We talked about mealtime. Jewish people like to eat. We studied how we should wash our hands before eating bread. We studied the reason, the message, how it's done, and a bit about the actual meal. I hope that was uh, informative, enlightening, and inspiring. Let's try to dedicate ourselves better to this mitzvah. Have a wonderful... If you have any questions, feel free to comment below. You can take a moment to share this post. Others can benefit from it as well. Next week will be just a few days before Lag Ba'omer. So hopefully we'll talk a little bit about Lag Ba'omer, the teachings of Kabbalah, 
which have a lot to do with that holiday. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Have a wonderful rest of your week. If you enjoy this lesson, please let us know.